0: Well, Christmas is coming. Gone. anybody taking down their Christmas decoration yet? Raise your hand. All right, we're one of the first ones to put ours up, and we're one of the first ones to take them down. Uh, but uh, that's okay. We got another holiday coming up this week. It's New Year's, and lots of bowl games, and chips, and guacamole, and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, so the 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 partying isn't over, uh, and there's lots of bowl games that are we'll watch, and we'll see uh, who wins, and all that kind of stuff. But I gave you an assignment last week. Hopefully you've done it. Paid attention. You know what it is. Some of you are all thinking right now, I don't have a clue what he's talking about and I was here. All right. Uh, so here's what it was. If you remember, this might jog your memory. I ask you to go home and to take time for yourself. Because remember, there's three things that we don't do well in this time of year, according to a study that was done, published in USA Today, is we don't exercise well, we don't take care of the house, and we don't take time for ourselves. So I've given you the challenge to go home, take time for yourself this past week, and do some reflection. I also mentioned last week that that really... Hopefully, in that time of reflecting, you can draw your life down to a simple sentence, a, a succinct statement, because it's like a resume, if you will. If you, uh, if you look at a resume, and again, HR people will tell you this, or recruiters will tell you this, that they'll only give about six seconds on a resume before they flip it over or throw it away. That's it. I mean, you either got to wow them in the first six seconds, or you're finished. On that resume thing. So if you were to think of your life in the form of a resume, if you were to think of your life in the form of six seconds, what would your life be? Could you sum it up? And that was my challenge to you last week. I'm going to give it to you again this week in case you are tardy. You'll just get 5% off next week. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, just think about what it is that defines your life. Now, if you look at the life of Christ, you can define Christ's life into two words. We talked about it last week. Grace and truth. So what are the two words that would define your life? If you can even narrow it down to two Words. Think about it. All right. That's your assignment. And I want to. At the level of accountability, I want you to email me your two words. I want you to Facebook me your two words. Whatever it may be. On Wednesday, I'm going to tell you my two words. I'm not settled on them, but I'm in that same mode as you, reflecting and thinking on what is my life, where is my life going, because what this exercise will do is it will give you definition and it will give you direction. Once you have a definition. this is my life, then it will also help set you on a course in a direction, hopefully in the path that God wants you to go, if at least, and hopefully it's on the direction you want to go. And again, what, and I know I'm overusing it, but it's New Year's, right? We make New Year's resolutions. What a perfect time to really think this kind of thing through and to put some, again, so a new trajectory on our life, a new, a new path, a new something on our life so that we can be heading in the direction that we want to go. Lots of advice out there if you want it on where to go in the new year, how to make a New Year's resolution, just Google it. I Googled it yesterday, you know, you ask, to, you ask God or you ask Google. Those are basically the two sources of information out there. And if you go to Google and you ask Google, you'll come up with Ann Landers probably, as I did. My search engine came up with Ann Landers, and Ann Landers will give you about 34 or 5 things that you can do in the New Year's. Now, I looked at them, some of them are pretty good, some of them are pretty shallow. What we're talking about here is not shallow stuff. If you're going to change and have what this message titled is called an unprecedented new year, you can't just change the furniture in the living room. You may have to change and check out the foundation of which the living room sets on. You may have to do some real internal introspection of this. And whenever you set a course, whenever you find that, just not a New Year's resolution. Whenever you do that, make immediate changes. Do what you got to do. Rearrange the priorities. Change the schedule. Quit the job. Find the new job. Enroll in the school. Make that friend. Renew that relationship. Whatever it may be. Do it and do it quickly. Charles uh, Sheldon said it like this He said, Good resolutions are like babies crying in the church, they should be carried out immediately. I agree with that as a preacher, and he was a preacher. That uh, crying babies in the church, you get not not no, get rid of them, you take them out. All right, you change them, change the environment, uh, and so do it as soon as you possibly can. Also, you keep looking for advice on New Year's. You come to the great Ben Franklin, even though Ben Franklin was not a professed follower of Jesus Christ, he was a deist. And he said this: He said, "Be at war with your vices." Pretty good advice. At peace with your neighbors, and let every New Year. Find you a better man. Now, let's just camp on that one for a moment. Every year, find you a better man or woman. What would that take to be, have a, I will just, I'll put my title into that, have an unprecedented life in the coming year. If you take Franklin's advice, you deal with your vices and you deal with your neighbors and your friends, and I want to ask it in the form of two questions. What part of your life needs to change? What vice do you need to focus on? What part of your life isn't on course, isn't right, isn't, isn't where you, you know it shouldn't be there? And maybe you know it and your family knows it and your wife has told you or her husband has told you, you've got to get help with this this year. We've got to fix this problem. Here's, here's the reality. This is where it's going to lead me into the new year and a new series of messages. Because God's been dealing with me on, on this topic. Because I really believe a lot of us do really well with the 85% of us. We do pretty good. We do pretty good with the 90% of us. But there's a dark 10%. There's a part that's a shadowy, dark part that we can't seem to get our hands on. We can't stop. We, we make a new commitment. We're not going to do that anymore. And we do it again. We're going to change and rearrange our lives, but we can't. We're stuck. That's the title of the series. It's just stuck. Because some of us in this room, in fact, I will say 90% of the people in this room are stuck. It's some area of their life and they can't get past it. So back to that question. What in your life? What part of your life needs to change? Number two question. What broken relationship, what a hostility do you have towards someone else? Think about it. Is there somebody in your life that you just, when you see them, there's a blood pressure rises up inside of you. And you can't seem to get past it and it's just, it just lurks out there. Maybe you're the person who walks across the room and initiates the relationship restoration. Maybe you're the one who, who, who again makes the phone call. And again, I can't stress this enough. A toxic relationship, we're not talking about complete reconciliation. Maybe it's just to be at peace with them. Maybe you're just going to work through some of that. So think it through. Again, Franklin's advice is if there's a vice, get rid of it. If there's a, if there's a, uh, if there's a relationship that's fractured, Renew it and restore it with your neighbor. But he misses one thing. Again, being a deist, he probably will miss this. is What about your relationship with God? I mean, if you're going to go from this year into next year and next year into the next year and next year into the next year, really, is it going to be any different? By chance it might. By chance it might. Unless there is really something at your core changes, then probably not. Your circumstances will come back in. Life pressures will come back in. You will forget those resolutions and you will go right back to the same old, same old. Take your Bible. We find the book of Joshua. Either turn there or scroll there if you're using the electronic version and find Joshua chapter three. Probably one of my favorite books, one of my favorite individuals. We even named our third child, Joshua. We absolutely, I absolutely love this person in the scriptures. And he is filling in some very big shoes. He has just taken on the leadership reins of uh, of the nation of Israel. Moses is dead. He's in charge. He's been told to be strong and courageous. He's getting ready to lead the people of Israel to where they've never. this generation has never been before. And I'm going to look at this, and I want us to not just talk about the vices that we have out there to be a better new year and the relationships that are broken out there and trying to renew them. I want to talk about our vertical relationship with God. Because I'm convinced of this, and it's not just because I'm a preacher standing up here on on stage and I'm told to, uh, to say this, but I'm really convinced that if I can get this right, a whole lot of this will be okay. A whole lot of this will be fixed if I can get my vertical relationship well and on the right track. Well, Joshua, in this new kind of opportunity of his... He is sitting on the banks for the past three days at the Jordan River and the Jordan River is swollen over. The banks are flowing over. The people of Israel have been in Egyptian bondage for like 400 years. Generation after generation, that's all they've known. Forty years prior to this, they were walking around the wilderness, lost, wandering around in the desert. And now they're literally sitting at the cross. The crossroads are at the riverbanks, getting ready to go to the other side. For three days, they're sitting there. And Joshua is getting ready to cross over to the other side. Now, here's where I want to draw the connection. I don't think this is a New Year's celebration, all right? So I'm not making the connection there. But where Joshua is standing is whether or not he's going to cross on the other side and go into the promised land. It's much like you and I are going to face on Wednesday night of this week or Tuesday night of this week. We're going to go into the new year, and either we're going to be like the people of Israel, and we're going to come up to this swollen river, and we're going to know about the big giants on the other side, and we're going to turn around, and we're going to go back where we've come from. And we're going to do the same thing next year that we did this year. Our life is not going to be any different next year than it was this year. And maybe you're pretty happy with things the way things were, but maybe you still know there's 15% of your life that has got to change. Because if it was ever uncovered, that 15%, it could wreck your marriage, it could wreck your career, it could wreck your life. And if we don't get unstuck from that stuck place in our hearts, in our lives, we're going to be in a heap of trouble someday. So we're at the the shores of the river, and so is the people of Israel, and so is Joshua. What happens now? And I want to say, how well we follow God's lead into the future will determine how well we live into the next year. So let's just kind of look at this in comparison, and let's read the story in chapter three of Joshua. Chapter chapter three, beginning at verse one. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days... Now, can you imagine what was going on in their mind for three days? They didn't know that God was going to part the Jordan River. They didn't know a lot of things of how it was going to happen. They just knew that they're at a raging river that's swollen over the banks and there's rapids and they're supposed to be on the other side. So get in their skin. There's probably some engineers over here trying to think it through. How can we build a bridge? There's probably other people thinking about, well, no, we can't do this. You have all these different ranges of emotions that are going on in these millions of people, and how are we going to get there? And everybody's looking at Joshua. Now, at this time, in the end of three days, the officers went to the camp, and they commanded all the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now, he gives some stipulations on how you're going to follow this this weird piece of furniture called the ark. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Yet there shall be a distance between you of about 2,000 cubits. And we'll come back to that in length. Do not come near to it in order that you may know the way you should go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. Now, this is a very timed out, sequential event that happens here. Now, I want to bring us all together and I want to bring it together in the sense that we are moving into the new year and how are we going to move into the new year following our God? So as we move out from here and we go into the new year, hopefully one of your aims is to be in a closer, tighter relationship with God. What does that look like? So three things, three expectations, if you will, of what it means to follow God. Number one, it means unconditional surrender. Unconditional, key word, surrender, keyword. Unconditional obviously means that there's no strings attached, God. I will go when you go, how you go, where you go, what you go. What, uh, just fill in the blanks, God. It's a blank check. Here it is, God. I'm going. I'm walking. I'm, 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 I'm following you. Here we go. Surrender, God, wherever, whatever, however you want me to go. Now, is there something important here? He talks about this Ark of the Covenant. What is that? It's not Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it is that the element that, uh, that they, 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 they chased and pursued in the movie. And some of y'all don't even know what Raiders of the Lost Ark is, okay? I'm dating myself. So in this, 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 this Ark of the Covenant, it's kind of an important piece of furniture, all right? It's an important piece of furniture for the Old Testament. And we have a picture of it, kind of a, not a picture of it, a drawing of it, a rendering of it, of what it is described, because it's very detailed described in Scripture, and it was about 27 by 27 by 45 inches. And it was overlaid with gold. So it was a very beautiful piece of furniture. And it had two cherubim or two angels on top. And in the middle between the two angels was a place called the mercy seat. Now, they weren't to move until they saw the Ark of the Covenant. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? And it's a very important element to understand. And I don't have time to develop it fully, so you're just going to take my word for it and then you have to do your own study on it, okay? But the Ark of the Covenant is really where God resided. Okay? It's where God was. In the Old Testament, it's where God represented. He led them for a lot of years by a pillar of of cloud by day and fire by night. But this is the time that the covenant becomes a major player in the whole movement of God. And it's where God resided. It was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It was where it was. Other nations wanted it so badly because it represented God in power that they would come and steal it. The Philistines sold it one time, and then God was not going to be put in a box. You don't take God anywhere. God leads you. And God began to deal with them, and they gave it back. So the represents God. But not only that, does it represent God? I think even more specifically, it represents Jesus Christ. Because there were some elements about this ark that were in this ark that point to Jesus. See, the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. The New Testament points us back to Jesus. So you bring them together and you see a complete picture. Now let me just list these out real quickly for you and then you can can do your own study on this. Inside the ark of the covenant was a a budding rod. That spoke of the rule of of christ the golden bowl of manna spoke of the resources that christ would offer us if you remember in the new testament what did jesus say i am the bread of life in the old testament they had manna they were supposed to put some of that manna and put it in the ark of the covenant that represented that god's resources and his provision what does jesus claim to be he proclaims to be the bread of life so he ultimately is the fulfillment of this piece of furniture The sprinkling, or excuse me, the commandments spoke of the righteousness of Christ. The mercy seat where the blood was, where they made an ultimate sacrifice once a year for the atonement on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. When that happened, that spoke of the redemption of Christ. Because it would be the blood of Christ that would be spilt for you and me that we could have forgiveness of sins. So this piece of furniture was not just a coffee table was not just a piece of furniture. It represented God. And when this piece of furniture moves, He says, you move. And there's three evidences if you look at that passage of Scripture real closely. Because Now listen, this is an important piece of furniture because two, two chapters, this phrase, Ark of the Covenant, is mentioned 16 times. So it is a major player in the story that's unfolding here. And they were told not to move, not to go anywhere, don't cross the river, don't stick your toes in the water until you see the Ark of the Covenant move. So I want to point out three evidences of you following God from that. Is that when we, we go, when God tells us to go. Now notice they said this to them in verse 3. As you see the Ark. You might underscore that phrase. As you see the Ark. That presupposes that you're going to be looking at the ark. You're going to be watching the ark. When the ark moves, you move. If the ark doesn't move, you don't move. For three days, you stay there. If he stays there for 30 days, don't move. We are to obey God when God gives us direction. Now, let me illustrate this from our own home. We developed a phrase when our kids were probably, I don't know, maybe uh, early, maybe middle school. They kind of got to the age that they began to exercise their free will a little bit. And uh, we would say, it's time to take out the trash. It's time to do the George, It's time to come for dinner. It's time for whatever it is. And then we would hear echoed through the hallways of the home something like this. Wait just a minute. I'm playing a game. Or, uh, or I'm on the phone uh, and I can't come right now. Now, after dinner's prepared, that's a disrespectful thing in our home, then you, you, you drop what you're doing. And we developed this little phrase, and it's not very, it's not very innovative, please. Uh, don't be with great anticipation over this. But it's basically this phrase. When we give direction, obey immediately. And we literally would drain that into their minds. Obey immediately. It's not hesitation. It's not whenever you get good and ready to obey. You obey immediately. That's the picture that I see here in this passage. That when God moves, you move. If God doesn't move, you don't move. So that presupposes this, that I'm going to have eyes for God. I'm going to be looking for God. I'm going to be listening for God. We also go how God tells us to go. Notice that he says, when the ark moves, you're to move 2,000 cubits behind. That would be helpful to know what a cubit is, to know how far behind. But literally in our, in our, in our math, it would be basically a hundred football fields. No, excuse me, ten football fields. Ten football fields, a half a mile. The ark's going to move, it's going to go out, and you're going to stay back here a half a mile. You're not going to go any closer. To that. Now, I think that's a little unconventional. I'm thinking when the ark moves, I want to get as close to the ark as I can. If that's where God is, that represents God. I want to follow God. I want to get as close as I can. But no, He's saying step back. Now I don't have a reason, and I don't have a special book that tells me why they had to stay back that long. But here's a here's a here's a point to remind to remind us about this unconditional surrender to God. I'm not God, and I don't have to have all the answers. If God says go, I go. If God says jump, I jump. I just follow Him. And if He says, stay back a thousand cubits, stay back a thousand cubits. If He says, come up, come up. The mere fact that He speaks and He gives me directions, I do it. I don't do it only when I understand it or only when I like it. I follow Him unconditionally. See, there was years ago that Lori and I, and I prayed it more than Lori, I think, that I prayed that, God, God, would you lead me back to Northwest Arkansas? I want to pastor in Northwest Arkansas. I can pastor that church, that church, that church. And God, I'll pastor any of those churches. Just lead me back to Northwest Arkansas. I was pastoring over in Northeast Arkansas. And I want to come back home. And you know God sent us? He sent us to Africa. You know, Africa, Arkansas, big difference. Uh, he sent us to Zambia. Thought we were going there for the rest of our life. Went there for four years. And then God opened the door for us to come back here. But it wasn't to an established church. It was to start a church. So we come back and we start a church. And I joke at this, and I've said it for the past 12 years since starting Grace Point, that God had to take us there before He could bring us here. He had to take us there because I wasn't ready. I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't—I I, I had to be stripped of my securities. I had to be stripped of my familiarities. I had to be stripped of my ideologies. I had to be stripped down. I wasn't ready. God may take you there to bring you here. God may do something very unconventional in your life. You may lose your job. You may get a promotion, and you may be well. I'm unqualified. God may do any number of things in your life, just keep following Him. Unconditionally, surrender to Him. Wherever He goes, you go. Not only that, but where God goes, you go. Where He goes. Now notice what He said there. Underscore it, circle it, highlight it, bold it, do what you've got to do with it. Set out from your place and follow it. Go after it, it says in one translation. Are you willing to allow God to tell you where, when, how much, and whatever in your life? I'm afraid most of us will say yes here, but when we live out there, we won't do it. It doesn't happen. So I want to give you some, just real quickly, some quick tips on how to start setting my life in motion to be more in an con- unconditional follower of Christ. So here's number one tip for you. Give God the first part of every day. Give Him the first part of your day. When you get up in the morning and you shower and you shave and you get all dressed up and pur- purified and all that kind of stuff and you are ready for, to conquer the day, stop right there. Stop. Take this book, pull aside, and get with Him. Now, there's another option for you as well. The Jesus calling. I would recommend that you take take a great devotional guide. You need some help and direction because you don't know what to do. That is the most succinct thing. I read one of those this morning. It's very simple. It's very succinct. It's got great scripture. You don't know where to go and read. Take time and be with Him. Give God the first part of every day. Number two, give God the first dime out of every dollar. Basically, God doesn't need your money. I don't know if you realize that or not. But you, in an act of obedience, in an act of surrender, need to be faithful to do this. I don't care if you're a member of this church or any other church. You need to give God, God a dime out of every dollar because it's in Scripture. It's instructed us. It will teach you to let go. It will teach you to be more generous, to make Him the priority in your life, in your giving every day. When you learn to give Him a dime out of every dollar, you will be worshiping Him, honoring Him, obeying Him, and it will be just setting the tone for all of your life given over to Him. And I'll say this. We, we passed these out in North Point New Members Class, but... Well, they're all across the stage today if you want to take one. I am so convinced that if you will do this for three months, that God will bless you in a three-month period of time, that if you don't feel in some way, I don't care, you can define the blessing. Uh, you know, it it could be your home. It could be your family. It could be your job. It could be just a peace of mind It could be a health issue. I don't know. I'm not saying if you give a dollar god's going to give you 10 But i'll tell you this if you tithe god will bless you And after three months if you can't measure somehow in your life that god has blessed you We will give you your money back It's very simple spelled out here. You sign it, you turn it in. It is that simple. In fact, all you have to do, you don't have to explain it, you write me one note after you've done this, you write me one note in three months say, Mike, I want my money back. And I won't even ask you questions. I won't think less of you. We'll send you the money back in a check. I'm so convinced that God is going to bless you when you give Him the first dime out of every dollar. see we need to give God the first and the best of every part of our life. So give him the first part of every day, give him the first dime out of every dollar. but also, number three, give God the first consider excuse me, give God the first day out of every week. Make this day holy. keep it holy. I know when traveling sports comes up and uh, vacations come up, keep this day holy. Keep it set apart. I love a man in our first service. First service, mind you, Don Keniston, who drives an hour from the other side of Eureka Springs every Sunday to come to church here, and he gets here before anybody else. So if you are sleeping in and you came late to the second service, I have no sympathy for you, okay? Okay. Don gets here before just about anybody else and he is out there with his hot cup of coffee and he's greeting people as they come in and he has driven an hour one way to get here. That's not the best part of the story. best part of the story is Don was out of church for 40 years. He came back to Grace Point. He gave his life to Christ. We baptized him here at Easter and the man has been changed. And he's a living example of what he what it means to give God the first day out of every week. Number number 4. Give God the first consideration in every decision. Here's my advice to you. Instead of asking God to bless your decisions, ask God to make your decisions and then wait for him to bless them. Can I said to you again, Instead of asking God, here's my decision, would you bless it? Here's what I want to do, would you bless it? Let God make the decision and wait for Him to bless it. Wait for Him to do what He wants to do in and through you. Unconditional surrender, you can't get away from it. Number two, unfamiliar surroundings. When you start following God, In the new year, in an unprecedented way, you're going to be led. I can't say it's going to be easy, and I can't say it's going to be comfortable. I can't say it's always going to be everything you wanted it to be. But I can tell you this, it is everything you wanted it to be because you're following Him. But He is going to lead you to some places that may cause you to have a little bit more faith than you're used to having. More failure comes through excess caution, Oswald Sanders says. Than from bold experiments with new ideas. We are more cautious, but I want you to notice the phrase it's the phrase that stands out more than any other phrase in this entire passage, maybe in the entire book. Chapter three verse three. Excuse me, verse verse four. The last part you have not passed this way before. You've not gone this way before. Now, let me ask you this. Please look up here and please listen to this question. When's the last time you did something for the first time? When's the last time you charted a new course? When's the last time you've gone somewhere and you've never been there before? God may lead you in a path to do something you've talked about doing, you've dreamt about doing, you've, you've admired other people who've done, but you've never done it because it's uncomfortable, because you don't have answers, because you don't have everything neatly packaged, and you don't have everything as you want it. I like the message version of this. You've never been on this road before. God was leading them on a road that these people had never gone before. But what an amazing blessing. When you know the other side of the story and you know that God is going to do what He's going to do, that's one thing. But you don't know that. And here's what happens whenever we, when we come to these moments in time. Two things rise up inside of us and one will defeat the other. One is fear, one is faith, which is going to win. Faith, fear, fear, faith. Fear says, let's go back where it's safe. I know it's safe here. I know I have an income here. I I know I have security here. I know the home here. I know the community here. I know, I know it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. Faith says, let's move forward. God's leading, God's moving, let's move with Him. Are you willing to move into the uncomfortable? Are you willing to do what you've never done before? Henry Blackaby said in his great work, you cannot go with God and stay where you are. You cannot go with God and stay where you are. I was reading a book. I read it an entire week. It was a really quick, easy read and picked it up. And actually a number of months ago, downloaded it and started reading it. And I finished it this week. It's about a man who who on his 54th birthday counted up the days that he had lived and he Realized that he had lived at that point 20,000 days there's an app out there for that and so just fyi so you can count up how many days that you've been on the planet he wrote a book called 20,000 days and counting a crash course in mastering your life right now it's a very easy read fast read book you come to the very last chapter of the book and it's literally titled the last quote and this is the statement that he makes Quoting from Max Lerner, he said this, We all run on two clocks. One is outside clock, which ticks away the decades and brings us unceasingly uh, to the dry season. The other is the inside clock, where you are your own timekeeper determine your own chronology, your own internal weather, your own rate of living. Sometimes the inner clock runs itself out long before the outer one. And you see a dead man going through the motions of living. That quote caught me. And I thought, has my clock died before my outer clock has died? Am I just going through the motions? And it really began to challenge me deep inside. I began to ask questions. Mike, when do you die on the inside? And I came up with my own conclusion. Whenever I am faithless and visionless, I die. I don't want to die. I don't want you to die. I want you to see God moving. I want you to move with God when He moves. I want you to go with Him into the chart, chart out into the unknown. But 2014, if it's going to be unprecedented, you're going to have to follow Him unconditionally. You're going to have to surrender to Him. Wherever He moves, you move. When He moves, you move. How He moves, you move. When you see Him moving, you move. All right. Keep your eyes on Him and then be willing to go into the unfamiliar. Thirdly, get ready. For the unusual signs of God. Now I'm not talking about some weird psycho signs of God on the wall. But when you notice in verse 5 what he said here. He said, he said Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate for yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. you. Break that verse down right there and you see how. The how of God. The how is sometimes inexplainable. The wonders of God miracles in the new testament god is going to do and he's going to rearrange and he's going to move out and he's going to do things that are inexplainable i can't go back 12 years ago when we started grace point church in the living room moving back from africa giving up our income and any source of security and coming back here and starting a church in a living room i had no clue we'd be here where we are today no clue you think, oh, it's easy. I'm just sitting here in this nice cushy seat in an air-conditioned building. It wasn't that way in the beginning. There was tremendous amounts of faith and perspiration and believing and trusting and praying, And God, are you in on this? And He has proven Himself. I think you can see that. Also, the win of God tomorrow. Now... New Year's Eve's two days from now. When's God going to start the new work in you? When's he going to move in your life? I don't know. But he said, he told them that day, tomorrow. And the what? Now I notice this the what of us. What are we to do? We're to consecrate ourselves. We're to make sure we're ready. Here's a question for you. Is your life ready for God to do? And absolutely. Life-altering, forever-changing work in. Are you simply not ready? I close with the story of William Borden, that in 1904 graduated from Chicago from a Chicago high school, from a very wealthy family, very well wealthy family, and as they as he graduated. He did what kids are doing in our day and age. Obviously, wealthy family enabled him to do that. He actually, they didn't call it that in the biography that I read, but he actually did a gap year. How many of you all ever heard of a gap year? Alright, it's a pretty cool thing when you get to travel, you graduate from high school, you go travel the world and and come back and hopefully you find yourself on that trip. Well, William Borden already found himself. He was a follower of Christ. He was devoted to him. But he took a year off. His parents, he graduated at 16 by the way. I can't believe this. But his parents gave him a, basically, an unlimited trip around the world. He went to Asia. He went to Europe. He saw the world. He sent a message back home. One simple statement. From that from that trip, desire to be a missionary, desire to be a missionary. One of his friends said, "You're throwing away your life." Desire to be a missionary. He took his Bible, and he opened up the back fly, fly leaf, and he wrote two words in that fly leaf: "No reserves." That's what he wrote. No reserves. No, I, I, no, nothing in my life. I'm giving it all over to him. Interesting story. He comes back to to Yale University. He enrolls in Yale in in 1905, becomes a student there. As a freshman, he becomes very disillusioned with the student body and the whole faculty and all the humanism that was pervading through the schools. And so what he does is he takes it upon himself to become a spiritual leader on the campus as a freshman. And he spends his time with some of the most incorrigible of students, sharing his faith, living out his faith, winning them over. By the end of his freshman year, there are 105 students in a. Excuse me, excuse me. 150 students in a Bible study with him. It's, it was said of him at the end of his life that he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. This is what one of his college classmates said. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ. Here's a guy who wrote no reserves in the back of his Bible. In his freshman year, he helps to lead 150 students. By the time he graduates, meeting in weekly Bible studies and prayer meetings around the campus are 1,300 students. This is a man who lived with no reserves. When he graduated from Yale, as you can imagine, a prestigious university, he was offered all kinds of jobs. He was offered to come back to the family business in Chicago and to make his living back there. He turns them all down. He turns them all down and he writes another phrase. He goes back to the back of his fly leaf and he writes these words, no retreats. Because, see, he was on that trip when he was before he was even a freshman. He was on that trip around the world, and he knew God had called him to be a missionary, and he wasn't turning back from that. He was not retreating from that calling. He goes on to, to Yale Divinity School. He gets his, his seminary degree, and then he launches out to go around the world because at the end of his seminary, he had identified a people group in China. The Kansu People group in China that were Islamic people were a Muslim people group, and he is going there. He gets on a boat and he boards that boat and he goes first of all to Egypt, because there he's going to study Arabic and he's going to learn the language, so he's going to go to this Islamic people and he's going to share the gospel with him. And he goes to, to Egypt and he gets off the boat and he gets spinal meningitis, and he dies at the age of 25. End of story. Kind of sad. 25, had all those aspirations, did all that great work as a student in the university. Dies at 25, tried to do God's work. News hit the papers across the states about him, about his story, and about what had happened. People start saying, what a waste. What horrible. He could have stayed here. He could have made money. He could have done all this kind of stuff. What a waste of his life. When all his stuff got back from Egypt, his Bible came back. The one that he wrote, no reserves, no retreats. When he was dying, laying there dying on his deathbed at the age of 25, he had written one more phrase, no regrets. Listen, if all you live is 25 years, but you live a life of no reserve, no retreats, no regrets. You've lived a full life. And I had rather live 25 years without regrets than 55 and 65 and 75 years with a track record of regret. I hope and pray to God for you that 2014 will be an unprecedented year and that 2014 for you will be, as it was for William Borden, no retreats, no no reserves, And no regrets. For some of you here in this room today, I got two words for you. So, if you're going home from here and you're going to live a life of no retreat, no regret, you're going to live that kind of life, where do I go? Where do I pick up from here and, and prepare myself for Wednesday in the new year so that it's unprecedented? What do I do in the gap? I think the first thing you do is you assess. You assess. Do I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't, I'm don't. i not making a lie to that because I'm supposed to say it's in the message, all that kind of stuff. I'm supposed to say that. Mm. No, I'm saying this. If you don't get the ark right, if you don't get the Jesus thing right, if you don't get the Holy Spirit inside of you right, if you don't do that right, then man, it's a crapshoot on next year. It's a rolling of the dice. have a relationship with Jesus Christ who will lead you who will show you who will go before you because if you don't you're just spitting into the wind The second question the second option is to refresh For some of you you have a relationship with Christ but it's cold Is your relationship with Christ is it is it full is it free are you, are you stuck somewhere? Think about it. I, I, to, I told you last week, I've been reading through Hosea and I finished it this past week. I got to chapter 14, the last chapter, and I read these words. Verse four, chapter 14, verse 1, it said, Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. And what is He going to do? How is He going to respond to you? I will heal you of your faithlessness. I will heal you and i like the next phrase and my love no just no bounds it will permeate it will saturate it will immerse itself over your life if you return to the lord for some of you you need to refresh for some of you you need to assess and give your life to christ would you bow your heads with me right now don't know Christ today, my challenge, before you step into the new year, give your life in unconditional surrender to Him. Just say to Jesus, Jesus, no games, no head games, no fakeness, no pretending. God, I want You. I want You to lead me. I want You to go before me. I want You to tell me where to go and how to go and when to go and I want to follow You, God. I want to give you my first and my best. I want to give you all of me, God, because you gave all of you to all of me. And I'm not much. Just tell Him in your own words that you want Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, your boss, your master, your friend, your guide through life. For some of y'all, your prayer needs to be, God, I'm sorry. I've dropped the ball. I've dropped my life. I've lived in mistakes and regrets, retreats and living on my own reserves and I want to give it all up. I want to live anew and afresh for You like never before. Father God, You know our hearts and I pray more than anything over this room right now that the the pretentious pretending will go. The facades will go. People in this room that are feeling stuck and locked in and can't get out of the quagmire, Lord, set them free. Set them free. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing with us?